Hello, everybody, and welcome back to You Can't Win. This is Tom here, and I'm joined by Don, as usual. And we're also joined by Professor Pizzagate. He's back once again. Another uh, installment of Pizzagate is Real. This time we're going to be talking about Bill Gates and uh, the World Health Organization a little bit, and uh, just talking about how international health institutions seem to be largely under his control or his influence to some extent. So we're going to start off talking about Bill Gates in the 90s, uh, perhaps some of his connections to Epstein and those circles and the kind of suspicious stuff around that, then move into how he has been able to use his wealth to achieve a great measure of influence in international health programs, and then talk a little bit about anti-vax movements that are against Bill Gates, but also not trustworthy either. So it's sort of a case of both sides are bad kind of a thing. So yeah, why don't you kick us off here, Mike? Uh, tell us what you got about Bill Gates in the 90s. Actually, we, we might uh, even go back a little bit earlier just to mention something about his family. Because we, we were talking a little bit about uh, C. Wright Mill's idea of the power elite uh, when we were talking about MKUltra. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I well, Bill Gates is born William Henry Gates III. So that tells you something right there. Uh, he might be a member of that class. Uh, he's born in Seattle in 55 to a family of sort of like area businessmen and lawyers um, and came up in a private school, with a very competitive family, and his uh, parents encouraged this kind of early computer interest that he had. Um, his formation of Microsoft was kind of um, driven by his friendship with Paul Allen, um, who's just like his school chum that they formed a, a programming club with. Um, and he went to Harvard for two years, but left uh, after joining Allen at Honeywell for uh, a summer job and forming the, the plan at that point to uh, found Microsoft. So in, in the lead up to the 90s, he quickly becomes you know, systemically important in the computing infrastructure of America and quickly the world because Microsoft is contracted by IBM to produce MS-DOS, which is the, the operating system that the IBM PC uses. And, and Tom, you had uh, some, some interesting snippet about like a family connection there. Right. So I was unable to find like a really great source for this, but I have heard this from a number of places and I believe this to be true. I just wasn't able to like find a good citation for it that uh, so IBM is was a massive computer company at that time. And Microsoft was there was no particular reason that IBM should go to Microsoft for for their needs for for their operating system. So it seems that Bill Gates's father, Bill Gates Sr., was a close personal friend of, I believe, the CEO of IBM at the time. So it was sort of like a nepotistic kind of move. And I think this just really shows that, you know, if you remember, some of our listeners may be old enough to remember this, that the story around Bill Gates was always that, oh, you know, college dropouts, they can make it in America too. They can start a company in their garage and just through determination and their own personal genius, they can make it and be successful and stuff. And that is really not the story here. He comes from money. He comes from connected families 
and they set him up. He left college, I would say, because he didn't need to go to college. He was, you know, he had everything that college could provide for him already in the form of his family connections and everything. So, yeah, it's just, you know, rich kid making it kind of a thing. And he also, I mean, I know the, I can remember the basic story of this also being that uh, he, uh, you know, MS DOS basically was taken from other sources and things like that. Like, it's oh, not that's like, right. so it's not like, uh, you know, I mean, he did, he obviously understood the, you know, as Mike was saying, almost like the systemic uh, importance, the strategic sort of, he found a place to sort of, uh, um, you know, lodge himself as a middleman within the system, you know, a literal middle force kind of thing within the computer world. And, uh, the interesting thing about that as well is that I think within a few years that became very apparent to everyone and even the federal government and stuff started making noise a lot about, you know, coming in cracking down on this. And, uh, it became like a runaway train kind of thing where all the attempts to sort of talk about that ended up, uh, you know, uh, um, sort of like floundering around and uh, I mean there were actions against Microsoft in different ways but it's still you know it's it's still so central to it's just got that inertia that first mover thing to it so yeah yeah and I, I just wanted to remind people if they haven't listened to our I think it was the second Pizzagate is real episode where we really went into depth on Epstein and the mafia connections and the intelligence connections and all that kind of stuff uh, we talked for quite a while on there about the development of the various computer programs and stuff like that. And this was, you know, prior to Microsoft and stuff. And I don't know. I don't know if you have any direct kind of linkages there, Mike, but I think it's important to keep in mind that this was something that those circles were aware of, were very interested in, and they kind of were ahead of the curve in terms of like seeing what the future might look like with computing and all that kind of stuff. So it's not like they saw Bill Gates and like, oh, man, this is amazing. We should really get in on this. It it has this feeling to me of not like they planned it out exactly, but they they knew what they were doing from from the get go. You know, it wasn't like they like just suddenly came upon this thing. Yeah, it's not a coincidence that, you know, Microsoft has been very cooperative with, you know, the NSA and various kinds of programs that they have and the intelligence community in general, right? I mean, it's kind of interesting, actually, um, just this this idea of the, you know, boy genius uh, starting the multi-billion dollar conglomerate in his garage, um, because it, it's the archety- archetypical story that is offered to us for some of the most important tech corporations um, in right. American history, right? You know, you have uh, Bezos is ostensibly the same way. You know, Zuckerberg is ostensibly the same way. The one thing I would say about Bill Gates is that, you know, unlike Bezos or Zuckerberg, uh, Gates actually has like publications to his name where he lays out algorithms for things, right? Like he, he actually definitely did have uh some uh idea of what's what was going on and he had like you know programming chops and all of these kinds of things um so i i'd say almost like he he kind of forms the the pattern for this mythology though um they they had this one golden boy and then they they keep showing us this this picture over and over again 
Yeah. And so, you know, he becomes a very, very rich man off of the, the back of Microsoft and gets into trouble with the antitrust stuff. I mean, he was like a very hated person. It's really interesting to note the difference in his like public persona in the 90s compared to now. Uh, I, I don't know if you guys remember this, but when he was in Belgium at one point, these guys kind of like they were wearing masks and, and everything like kind of black block sort of an outfit. And they just ran up to him and pied him in the face on his way <laughs> to a meeting. Yeah. Uh, he, he, you know, he was the target of a lot of that kind of action. He was sort of seen as like the evil billionaire millionaire kind of guy. Sure. Yeah. And this whole sort of early movement of people saying, well, we shouldn't have monopolies within the um, computer sector kind of thing, you know, like that, this whole, uh, concern that evolved and then that sort of even fed into things like the emergence of parallel alternatives like linux and to some extent like apple as a you know like apple became kind of the hip one that was the al microsoft alternative and you know so it's it's interesting how a lot of those debates are still here it's just that they're submerged in some ways into different things now like the more you know cutting edge stuff like airbnb and uh uber instead of right you know instead of uh the backbone kind of stuff you know so yeah uh it, it the whole story sort of reminds me in a way of uh john rockefeller who was the head of standard oil you know also faced antitrust legislation and problems like that and was also like a hated kind of emblem of the evil of wealth the power of billionaires and all that kind of thing and who rapidly shifted his PR to become like this kind of philanthropic, very generous, rich guy, right? So uh, it's also interesting to note that Warren Buffett has a very similar persona as he he is a rich guy, but he is kind of like a common person. He has this like ice cream thing that kind of makes him feel relatable. Like he, you know, Rockefeller would just give people on the street money. Warren Buffett hands out ice cream and all this kind of stuff. Uh, it's interesting to note that Bill Gates uh, was, to some extent, mentored by Warren Buffett as well. So, I, I, you know, th there's uh, there's sort of like this kind of lineage of the the uh, monopolist turning good through philanthropic endeavors that I think sure. characterizes yeah. the present Bill Gates that we know, right? Like he's now the face of vaccinations and uh, and all this kind of stuff that you know uh, undoubtedly he has done a lot of good things or at least those programs are doing good things but it's not it's not necessarily the case that uh the intentions behind it or the way that it's being done and the way that it's affecting the global economy the, the global like political systems and all that kind of stuff are good like that that might be a very bad thing even though the actual medicine being provided to poor countries all that is you know indisputably a good thing yeah and i think later on if we have time i can kind of get more into that sort of you know political economy side of it and uh you know that's the i was reading a bit about the giving pledge and things like that around that um and uh but you know we'll try to get back into more specifically bill gates and who and all that now i guess all right so uh, before we move on to the this kind of like second period of, of Gates's life, I think we want to talk a little bit about his relationship with Jeffrey Epstein. So, you you know, I think a lot of people have 
heard that he was on the flight logs, that he had some sort of relationship with him. But it's kind of easy to write that off as like, well, Bill Gates is one of the richest people on the planet. He's involved in all kinds of different business things and philanthropic things. So him being somehow connected to Epstein, you know, it's not super surprising if you just consider the fact that, well, Epstein was laundering all this money all over the place and all that kind of thing. So it could be sort of incidental, could be relatively innocuous and all that kind of stuff. But uh, there's been some recent stuff coming out, especially from Maria Farmer, who was Epstein's personal interior decorator, who has recently kind of been giving interviews and talking about her experience with that and trying to uh, basically act as like a whistleblower on some of this stuff. Uh, She was saying that in 95, 96, that Epstein, Bill Gates, and Donald Trump were essentially like an inseparable trio, that they were constantly hanging out, that Maxwell, uh, you know, Jelaine Maxwell and uh, Epstein knew Bill Gates very well, that, you know, this was not just sort of like a impersonal business relationship that they had, you know, on a once, you know, occasional sort of thing. It, it It was a deep and long standing relationship. Like we're talking about going back to the mid nineties. And then this continues on into the two thousands. Uh, there was the, the, uh, donations that Bill Gates has made to MIT personally, but then he also, for some reason that we don't really know for sure, but it seems to be some sort of payment or something that he was running money through Epstein to MIT anonymously. So there's a lot of really shady stuff going on here. And I think it colors the later period and his kind of more recent programs and all this kind of stuff that he's doing in a really sinister kind of light. So, uh, Mike, did you want to talk about the foundation, the, uh, Gates foundation? Yeah, let's, let's talk about that. And, um, and just mention some things, uh, about the, what was going on with Epstein at this time period. Um, so what later becomes the Bill and Melinda Gates foundation, uh, when Bill and Melinda, decide to combine their foundations in in 2000 it uh on bill's side starts as the william h gates foundation uh in 94 which he founds by donating microsoft stock and at that point you know these kinds of foundations are pretty popular um among the the very rich but it's notable that um epstein so allegedly maria farmer is saying that uh, Maxwell and Epstein were good friends with Bill in 95. So this is around the same time period. Now, in 92, a little bit before that, Epstein met a woman named uh, Melanie Walker, later to become uh, Dr. Melanie Walker, um, who was an aspiring Victoria's Secret model. Okay, so this is very much um, in the, the mold of Epstein's activities, it's obvious why he would be in contact with this woman. She later right. becomes his so-called science advisor after she completes med school in 98. And, yeah, and she, just wanted to remind folks, Victoria's Secret, it should always ring a bell for you as that is Les Wexner's company and Les Wexner, uh, again, to use uh, Maria Farmer's words, is the head of the snake in the United States. Right. And, you know, uh, Whitney Webb was um, also uh, mentioning that she had found an article written by Nigel Rosser in the Evening Standard in 2001, in which he reported 
that Epstein uh, was known to have been funded by Wexner, Trump, and Gates. So in as early go. as 2001, the press in the UK was alleging that Gates was um, funding Epstein directly. So, okay. Um, in any case, Melanie Walker ends up uh, working for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. She introduces Boris uh, Nikolic to Epstein, who is another Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation director or high-ranking officer. Um, he joins later in, in 2006. And this guy is also on Epstein's will as an executor, although he refused to um, take that dubious honor. So uh, through this period, basically, you can start to see kind of a sketch of an outline of what was going on with Epstein and Gates. And it seems likely that this relationship substantially predates, you know, what the breathless kind of New York Times article about their long-lasting association suggests started in 2011. Um, that seems a little bit unlikely. Uh, it, it, based on what we're hearing now, it seems more likely that this was in the 90s. Yeah, there seems to be a lot of stuff around Epstein that's being published now to kind of like massage the narrative a little bit and sort of cut things off at a certain point, like it is with here with Gates or to sort of paper some things over while exposing and highlighting other things. So you kind of like cut their losses sort of a thing. So you really have to be careful when you're looking at various sources, especially, you know, more uh, quote unquote reputable sources because they kind of you know, they, they're influenced in various ways. So you just have to be careful. We should probably say that the, even just the account offered by, you know, the New York Times is pretty outrageous, right? Like they're saying that the first meeting is in 2011. So this is after Epstein's uh, pedophilia conviction. Um, right. He yeah. later, actually, that meeting is, is quite interesting. This is the probably the same meeting as the photo that was circulating. Um, with Larry Summers, uh, Epstein, Gates, and then you have uh, Boris Nicholas on the far right. On the far left is a J.P. Morgan executive, and allegedly they're talking about a scheme to raise money for some global health initiative, and Epstein is looking for a percentage on his fundraising for this charity. So, um, But that may have been the, the meeting that Gates uh, sends an email to his staff about saying like, oh, you know, like Epstein's lifestyle is very intriguing, um, you know, and he he mentions that a very beautiful Swedish woman and her daughter showed up to this like dinner that they were having and he stayed very late with them. Oh, um, and so that is actually uh, Ava Anderson Dubin, who um, we mentioned in connection with the, the Dubin family, who had the a uh, Hispanic couple working in their kitchen who uh, talked to a young woman who said that she had been raped on Epstein's island. So we mentioned that in the first episode. Um, so these these are like, this is Epstein's crowd who is there. Um, and uh, Bill sounds very excited. Uh, and it's in 2014 that he makes that, um, you know, donation to MIT uh, which is supposedly directed by Epstein. And, you know, the, the Gates uh, official, you know, denial of this is just a non-denial. It's just you don't have any evidence, so it didn't happen. 
Yeah. Yeah, so the uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, it's interesting because there's actually two foundations. There's the foundation itself, and then there's the foundation trust, which manages the assets. So the foundation provides the money, and then there's a separate organization that manages those assets. So I'm not sure if that's how that's supposed to work, but uh, that's what they do, apparently. So it's important to note this is like the largest uh, philanthropic foundation in the world i believe it's uh 46.8 billion dollars in assets um it funds the guardians global development website it funds npr's global health coverage it funds the our world and data website which tracks the uh, latest statistics and research on the coronavirus it funds bbc coverage of global health and development issues uh, both through the BBC Media Action Organization and the BBC itself. And it also funds world health coverage on ABC News. Um, there was a time when uh, NewsHour was approached by the Gates Foundation for a $3.5 million grant that they wanted to set up to cover global health issues. And the uh, communications chief of the program, Rob Flynn, was wondering if there would be a potential conflict of interest that a unit that is funded by the Gates Foundation would, you know, inevitably run into when reporting on global health things that the Gates Foundation is itself involved in. He said, in some regards, I guess you might say that there is not a heck of a lot of things you could touch in global health these days that would not have some kinds of Gates tentacle. And indeed, that seems to be the case. Uh, he, they're behind pretty much everything. They are a major funder behind the uh, World Health Organization. They actually provide, I think, those, they, the second most uh, the largest amount of funding after the United States, although I guess now they are the single largest funder as the United States has pulled out. They fund more than Australia, Canada, France, Germany, Russia, and the UK combined. Um, <laughs> yeah. They uh, created Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, which is a global uh, public-private partnership to bring together state sponsors and big pharmaceutical companies with the goal of creating healthy markets for vaccines and other immunization uh, products. Uh, they've also provided seed money for the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria. Again, a public-private partnership. Um, and even more interesting than that is that... the So the Gates Foundation has had this program called the Vaccine, the Decade of Vaccines, and in charge of that, uh, project has been Dr. Anthony Fauci, who I think a lot of people are now familiar with. He's often in the coronavirus presser things that he's doing with Trump and is, uh, you know, there's been this recidivir uh, medicine that they are saying is, is uh, has been very promising and they're fast tracking it. And uh, that seems to be tied up by a Gilead contract, which is a major private health company so uh, yeah th there's a lot of money floating around this stuff and it seems to all kind of go back to the gates foundation uh there's also of course the polio vaccinations in africa which i think mike is going to talk to us a little bit about here in a second but um yeah i was just wondering if you guys have any thoughts on on all this one of the the things that i found kind of grimly amusing is um uh, so uh, Tedros, the uh, the WHO uh, leader, yeah. um, 
surfer. <laughs> Hang on, what, what is his last name? Just, that just it's, came across uh, as like incredibly condescending. Uh, Gebre Jesus. Oh God. Okay, I'm not going to try that. Something okay. like that. So one thing that I found funny um, is that the current uh, WHO um, leader Tedros, I'm not going to try to pronounce his uh, his surname, um, is actually a uh, former Ethiopian uh, minister of health. He's not a physician. He uh, worked with uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation on um, a vaccination project, which was a pneumococcal um, vaccine that uh, started to be distributed in 2011 in his country. And that was administered by um, the Gavi Alliance that, that uh, Tom mentioned. So, I mean, it's, it's not just that, you know, he funds the WHO at some kind of um, arm's length uh, remove. He's deeply connected to um, and probably has some level of influence over the actual you know, personnel who are running the show. Yeah, I, I also I want to mention about him. He's a very interesting choice for someone to lead the World Health Organization because when he was the health minister in Ethiopia, he was accused of covering up not one, not two, but three different cholera outbreaks in the country. So he doesn't have like the best history of <laughs> managing this sort of stuff. And yet here he is in charge of... World Health Organization and now sort of the international response to the coronavirus. And uh, I think anyone who's been following this is well aware of the fact that the World Health Organization has made some missteps along the way. They have been kind of following China's lead. Uh, for example, in the beginning in January, they were saying, like China was saying, that there is no evidence of human to human transmission. And now we know that that is very much not the case. Uh, so yeah not not someone that you i don't know just not someone that i find to be the most trustworthy source on this kind of thing yeah so you can see that the uh the gates foundation has its fingerprints all over you know every global health initiative in like the past 20 years or so it is putting tons of money behind everything it's putting money behind media coverage and uh behind it all are these private uh, public-private partnerships, which, um, you know, as every American knows that these companies are really seeking to profit and not necessarily prioritize the actual health benefits of these various initiatives and medicines and stuff. So one thing that we can point to that is a massive blunder or a massive wrongdoing on the Gates Foundation part is these uh, vaccine programs that have occurred in Africa and India. And I think Mike is going to tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so there's uh, a lot of material kind of on both sides of this issue. It, it does seem like, you know, uh, if you make any critique of these programs at this point, that you will be portrayed as an anti-vaxxer. But, uh, you know, if you go and, and look at the, for instance, the uh, human papillomavirus vaccine um, that was uh, distributed in India, this was by a organization called PATH, which uh, is found, funded by the uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Um, and the, the Indian or an Indian parliamentary committee um, alleged that they had committed ethical violations during that trial. And they presented the documents of 
the ethical consent forms that were, you know, supposedly signed by, you know, mostly illiterate villagers, um, often with thumbprints. Um, and, you know, a good, good number of them did not have witness uh, signatures as required. And it's a little bit unclear. Um, you know, this, this vaccine was being administered to underage uh, children. It has to be administered before um, puberty in order to be effective against cervical cancer. Um, it's a little bit unclear how, you know, informed consent would work in the case of, you know, an underage person who is illiterate and not really going to be capable of dealing with, like, a description of the pharmacological kinds of uh, consequences that could occur from taking um, or being administered this kind of vaccine. Um, and the the little sort of cutout that uh, the Gates Foundation was using, which is what they do, they set up with these things like Gavi and PATH and these things, and, and they go into the countries and start distributing vaccines. They were operating in India without the proper paperwork, basically, for nine or ten years. So they were plainly in violation of Indian law. Um, a lot of the kind of um, dismissal of this um, concern on the part of uh, the Indian parliament revolves around the idea that, well, okay, these seven uh, young girls who are alleged to have died as a result of this trial actually died because of other things, whatever, whatever. I mean, I, you, you can just look at the conduct of the, um, the uh, NGO that was conducting the trial uh, in terms of informed consent and know that there were ethical problems, right? And this, this characterizes um, a lot of the behavior of these little uh, NGO cutouts that they're using. Um, so another uh, PATH-funded trial was a malaria vaccine that was conducted uh, as a phase three trial in seven African countries. So they had 15,000 um, children that were enrolled um, and 151 of those children died. Um, and about 15 to 20% of them, so that's 1% deaths, about 15 to 20% experienced a severe adverse event uh, after the first administration of this malaria vaccine. Um, and basically, the sort of defense about this was, well, we, you know, the control group was a rabies vaccine, and just as many kids died from the rabies vaccine, and just as many kids had severe adverse events from the rabies vaccine. So that's what's to be expected. Um, I don't know about you, but I think that if, you know, the vaccines that were ubiquitously distributed to white kids in North America had a 1% fatality rate and a 15 to 20% severe adverse uh, event rate, um, that people would probably not want those vaccines distributed in schools. So, Yeah. So are, are we talking about testing, like they're testing vaccines on these populations? Um, so in the in the Indian case, it's a little bit weird because part of the defense here is that they weren't even looking for a clinical outcome. They were just trying to see how many people would take the vaccine. So, I, you know, that that's is that a is that a trial? This is, and this is one of the complaints that the Indian government had is like this, you know, this is not a proper trial that can be regulated by under our law. Right. Um, as far as the, the malaria trial goes. Yeah. I mean, it was it, this is a, a phase three um, uh, GlaxoSmithKline uh, drug that was being, uh, or vaccine that is being administered to children in African countries. And you might say, okay, well, 
those are the places that have malaria. And so this is, you know, how we're going to conduct this study. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, personally, I was a little bit shocked by that, especially given that the, so the reported efficacy of the vaccine is that um, malarial infections in kids are reduced by about half. So, I mean, are you going to take a 1% chance of killing your kid and like a 20% chance of like maybe paralyzing them in order to re- uh, achieve, you know, like a 50% uh, lower probability of your kid getting malaria? Yeah, I, I don't <laughs> I mean, at the very least, they should be able to make an informed choice about that, right? And that doesn't seem to be an option that they were really given. It's, it's definitely unclear, you know, it's definitely unclear. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, that, you know what that sounds like to me, it's almost like if they're not interested in the actual, like scientific, like, does this work? Does it not work? They're not really doing that. They're just seeing how many people will take these vaccines. It's almost like market research in a sense. And instead of needing to just sell a product, they have these different instruments where they can kind of distribute it and then they just have to sell it to the institutions that like the NGOs and the international organizations that can distribute these things and get, you know, they can handle all that. And all all they have to do is set it up. So that's the drug that they are going to distribute. Then the private companies that produce it and all that, you know, they make their money just by selling it to those organizations in the first place. You know, in this case, um, those those vaccines were actually donated, which is kind of interesting. It, it, mm. <laughs> and it makes you wonder um, if, you know, maybe those lots were not the best lots, you know, and that's maybe why they were donated. I don't know anything about that, but, um, yeah, you know, you, you don't you don't typically see those kinds of um, uh, fatality, morbidity, mortality rates in vaccines that are distributed in the west so i don't know yeah i mean this gets into kind of the murky conspiracy theory waters where you have quotes from bill gates of him saying you know just being very enthusiastic about like reducing the population in the third world and uh there's the whole event 201 thing which maybe we can talk about a little bit but i I am i'm pretty wary of all that you know that direction of things because it just seems a little bit um, it just fits a certain kind of goofy narrative that I, I'm not, I'm not so sure that that's the real point here. I, I, it really seems to me like the whole private public partnership thing and the ability to profit off this kind of stuff seems to be like the priority. I would imagine that to be the case rather than some sort of like plan to like reduce the world population and vaccinate the whole world and all this kind of stuff, which you tend to see if you start digging deeper and onto the, uh, you know, more interesting side of the internet. But, um, yeah, so I guess I can talk about event 201. It's kind of a fun thing. So, uh, maybe some of you have heard of it, but for those of you who haven't, uh, last October, the Bill and Melinda Gates foundation partnered with the world economic forum and the John Hopkins center for health security to stage event 201. It's a tabletop exercise gauging the economic and societal impact of the, of a possible, coronavirus pandemic so this was prior to the whole thing breaking out uh they just happened to do this pretty large scale simulation of oh you know what would it look like if there was a massive pandemic uh just a few months before the thing actually happened so um it's it's kind of interesting uh they have talked about the fact that well you know it's important for us to 
understand how these things work. And it's, it's certainly not the case that people, you know, like experts on this field, like that they weren't aware of the possibility of coronavirus pandemics and stuff. That's, there's people who've been talking about that for decades. So honestly, I don't think that that looks too strange. The, the timing is really remarkable and pretty funny, but uh, to be honest, it doesn't seem like like what would be the point if they let's say they're planning this. This is some kind of plan that they had. What would be the point of publicizing the simulation? Wouldn't they just do it, you know, themselves and then keep it private? You know, so I, yeah, because they're laughing at us. <laughs> Did they have release any of the sort of outcomes or you know things? That oh they, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. There's a uh, if you look it up, it's uh, they have like a whole like kind of summary and a highlights reel. I think it's on YouTube. Uh, let's see. I have some quotes here. Let me see if they're. Yeah, I don't really have much. I mean, the main the main thing that I took away from it was that they definitely were looking at like who 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 is put in charge, like what kind of actions can they take, and it basically is leaders of business, pu- public health, and civil society. So it's it's the same kind of class of people that you know Gates and Epstein and Trump. It's the same kind of th- that same group of people that. They've been hanging around with and making deals with and working together. Now it's those are the same people who are put into a position of leadership in response to something like this. And it's, you know, that's what we're seeing today, too. We're seeing, you know, Fauci has become the face of like a reliable doctor that America can trust on. You know, we can't trust Trump. He's crazy, but. Fauci's there, at least he's there keeping things under control, but he's not reliable either necessarily. Like I'm not saying that he's totally unreliable, but he has connections to specific companies that are trying to you know cash out on this pandemic. So uh we just have to be aware of that. Like the whole uh recidivir thing or whatever it's called. Yeah, remdesivir. Uh, remdesivir, yeah. Uh I I uh not so sure. Like I I, I don't know. We'll see. I I would love for something like that to just, oh, you know, we figured it out. This is really successful. Let's let's give everyone this drug. Okay, fine. Um, but and even let's say it does work, uh, and and they they're making money off of it. You know, that's that's fine too, really, right? Like that's that's what it is. But I don't know. It's just good to know like how these things are working. Like what are the mechanisms behind the scenes? It kind of. The, the people in, in power are not really prioritizing the actual efficacy of, of making sure that people are safe. They're looking at this as an opportunity to cash out. So I, I think it's important to understand that there are very high national interest industrial stakes here too, right? Like it's very interesting that Trump was made to play the fool over the whole hydroxychloroquine thing. You know, hydroxychloroquine has, pro- you know, roughly the same sorts of evidence that uh remdesivir has in terms of like well maybe it works you know there's some equivocal evidence one way or the other that it helps a bit um but you know it was the whole oh this is gonna kill you and trump likes it so it's horrible and all these kinds of things but you know sanofi um is the largest producer of uh, hydroxychloroquine in the world so that's a french company the next uh two largest are in india and china so, you know, there are clear reasons why um, 
you know, American administrations would prefer to have the production of the treatments that they're going to be distributing ubiquitously to all Americans in America. Um, and that's particularly true in the context of a vaccine industry where, you know, probably the most mature platform that unfortunately will take a really long time to school up, but is most likely to actually produce a vaccine is Sanofi Pasteur's. So, you know, what they really probably don't want at all is for both the pharmacological and vaccine treatments that are recognized as, you know, like the gold standard um, to be with a French company. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. We've been talking a bit about before on the podcast about like this whole almost turn to nationalism in some respects and like at least the visibility of this strategy more of countries being much more explicit about wanting, you know, the whole chain of production to be sort of within their sort of uh, um, narrow control and each country really, you know, promoting rivalry in these fields and things like that, which is which is interesting because, uh, you know, I think from a scientific perspective or, you know, just a very basic bureaucratic perspective, you'd want international cooperation to be at the maximum you know, for a pandemic, that's just like the definition is is that you want cooperation. And I think that there is this sort of liberal sense that Bill Gates very much, you know, taps into that, you know, these are global problems. And it's one of those things where you can get a lot done by playing into that narrative kind of thing, you know. So I think that's, uh, you know, that's, when we start to look at all these different solutions and drugs and things like that, that uh, it's interesting to see how, yeah, like the the what is considered a good drug and what is considered a silly thing uh, itself filters through ideology and then can reverse itself very quickly too because there doesn't seem to really need to be a like a consistent narrative as long as you know people are laughing at the other side or something. So yeah. Yeah, I think that that's a good lead in for uh, the whole RFK Jr. thing that we wanted to talk about. So um, everyone knows about the anti-vax movement and, and all of that. But what a lot of people don't know is that the it's, it's essentially two uh, foundations or two organizations that are behind it. One of these organizations is called the Children's Health Defense, and the other one is called the World Mercury Project. Both of these are founded by Robert F. Kennedy Jr. He, he's backing both of these organizations, and that's essentially where the anti-vax movement comes from. Um, the Children's Health Defense is sort of about the idea of vaccines causing harm to children. I think the whole vaccines cause autism thing comes from, from this. Uh, the other one is the World Mercury Project, which the I think there's, you know, to be honest, I haven't that's, per- that's perused the their ideas too much, but that's the autism one. Yeah. Okay. Well, they say that there's like dangerous levels of mercury that are in every vaccine and that's what causes the autism and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. And, and they've actually been going hard against Bill Gates. The whole anti-vax kind of side of things has, has been doing that too. And uh, obviously they're not much better like i wouldn't say that this is a case of good guys and bad guys i would say that this is a case of opportunists uh just flocking to an opportunity so um you actually had an article from rfk right mike about bill yeah so 
this one kind of caught my attention because you know it had uh, was reasonably well sourced. Um, although I think you know some of the things that uh, he's saying are accurate and others are a little bit misrepresented. But the, the thing that, that really caught my eye was um, the allegation that I had not heard before at all, that there was a WHO-sponsored human uh, chorionic gonadotropin vaccine, which basically is a vaccine which would prevent you from getting pregnant. Like, you would not be able to maintain the pregnancy because um, you have antibodies against human chorionic gonadotropin. So... Um, that part actually turns out to be sort of true in the sense that there was a, uh, a doctor in India um, named uh, G.P. Talwar who did work in collaboration with the WHO in India and was um, running one of their programs while this was going on. Um, and he developed a, a vaccine that was uh, tetanus's toxin uh, conjugated to a human uh, chorionic gonadotropin protein, basically. And so there were allegations from a Kenyan Catholics, uh, Catholic doctors group um, to the effect that um, the tetanus vaccine that was being administered in Kenya um, was contaminated with this sterility vaccine. Um, is just pretty much impossible to substantiate that um, the lab that did the relevant testing was like immediately decertified afterwards and um, it's it's hard to tell exactly what was going on but that that part actually is true that there is this this vaccine that was developed by this one guy and he did work with the WHO um, so you know whatever you want to say about the depopulation idea or whatever uh, that that was going on so that was a that was a little bit weird for me um you know at the same time uh i think that probably we want to be a little bit more more critical and think that you know it's possible that one of these um vaccine candidates that's being worked on for coronavirus could work i don't think it's very likely but it's at least possible yeah. It's important to to know, though, that India does have a history of compulsory sterilization. Uh, they had a state of emergency between 75 and 77, sometime in the 70s under Indira Gandhi. And they did um, they did sterilize huge numbers of poor people. It was essentially a, a means of controlling the population. Uh, so. Uh, thousands of people got uh, vasectomies. They were given like land, uh, land and money and loans and things like that as a means of sort of like, you know, getting them to participate in this. But then there, there was also just like compulsory sterilization as well. It ended up having like a really strong pushback and they ended the program. But it's possible that there are still elements in Indian society and there are elements uh, in all kinds of different countries that have done things like this. I remember reading about Israel sterilizing Ethiopian Jewish immigrants. Um, yeah, so it's it's not so, it's not completely like a wacko idea that there are people that have the ability to do this and and are taking you know taking those measures to do that kind of stuff. I mean, Epstein certainly seems to have been interested in eugenics and and 
breeding programs and various other kinds of creepy stuff. <laughs> right. Yeah. So that's something that we doesn't really fall under the scope of this episode. I think that would probably be its own episode. But uh, yeah, just something to keep in mind that the uh, Epstein circles like to talk about eugenics. They were always interested in when they were recruiting girls. They always wanted girls that were like doing well in school and they wanted like blonde blue-eyed girls and all this kind of stuff they were interested in like creating a master race with his dna and all this kind of very weird stuff that sounds completely outlandish but it's you know it is it's it's there it's documented so yeah very strange stuff um so yeah I, i just to kind of lay out the whole rfk versus bill gates thing i think the schema that makes sense to me is you have on one side, Bill Gates sort of representing like this international sort of approach to things. And then RFK, I mean, you kind of see the way that the politics of the anti-vax movement tends to line up with like right wing, somewhat nationalist, um, the kind of evangelical kind of politics like that sort of line up behind Trump. And um, it's yeah, it's just an interesting thing that you kind of see this dichotomy of like the they're they're both interested in sort of controlling the the health responses and the health initiatives to some extent and uh there seems to be very clear political lines that are dictating like where you know which which side would you prefer to be on you know if you if you have an interest in one kind of political form or one political ideology that sort of dictates the the type of health responses that you would like to see enacted as well it's making it impossible to tell what's going on in some cases. Like there was um, yeah. an American Association of uh, Physicians and Surgeons that released or uh, sent a letter to an official in Nevada, I think, or New Mexico, um, basically supporting the use of hydroxychloroquine um, with you know some reasonable, like clinical sounding rationale for doing so. Um, and then if you if you look a little bit more at like their other press releases, they're all very like kind of pro-Trump. And so, it, you know, you do see this this weird sort of political dichotomy forming. And it, it's odd to me as well in some cases because of the, you know, my association with anti-vaxxers is like wealthy white people who are not exposed to very much disease and they live in gated communities and stuff like that. So it's odd to see some of these interests um, swirling around uh, this whole idea of mandatory vaccination and so on that's being floated now. Yeah. Donald, did you have any thoughts on on that? You said you wanted to talk a little bit about like the political economy. Yeah. I mean, uh, I was thinking that, uh, you know, we talk about this whole idea of Bill Gates trying to develop a certain vision of the future of the world and then slowly sort of use private money as almost like a vanguard for changes that would be pushed through policy, through public, you know, public-private and all these things and sort of pulling, you know, this old bureaucratic structure, old... Uh, you know, stubborn kind of letting people do what they want kind of thing, you know, sort of thing and shifting it towards, you know, his vision of like, you know, maybe a sustainable population and, uh, you know, using high tech solutions to 
solve these old problems like malaria and all this kind of thing, right? So that's kind of his, uh, you know, angle on it. But I think it's interesting because uh, it really reflects a whole group, like almost like a class of rich people uh, doing this in all sorts of different ways. Like this, this is, it's almost like this is a, it's a leading case study of a whole uh, worldview of uh and i think you know in in political economic terms it's because in some respects there's been this shift where the state has receded in social programs and you know this ngo world has taken over a lot of you know basic delivery and you know stop gaps and things like that and at the same time you've had this explosion of wealth um and you know, related sort of tax vehicles and everything for creating foundations and creating, you know, this whole infrastructure out there for uh, kind of the blending of uh, rich families and philanthropy and like social purpose and then sort of states that are trying to do more with less and all that kind of thing. And the thing that's interesting to me is that, you know, the, so Gates has been sort of in Buffett, I think, and uh, has been kind of the leading person behind um, the this idea of the giving pledge, which is that rich people would give more, like they commit to giving, anyone that has a net worth over of a billion dollars um, commits to giving at least half of it away um, over the course of their life and then in their estate. Um, so uh that you know they've got like something like 209 people i looked at their website and uh currently committed to that which number one it's surprising number one what how many people they've gotten to commit to it uh already and then number two are really how many billionaires there are in the world like it's just like a <laughs> it's surprising you know like how many there really are so many rich people out there really com- considering how much that is really you know it's just an enormous amount of money and uh, so it just shows that there's this kind of concentration of wealth. And what I think is interesting about it uh, to me is this, it's like this using these structures to remake society in their image, right? Like it's like, you know, like the Epstein stuff is almost, uh, it's almost like a hallucination extreme version of that, like him saying he would create perfect people and stuff. But if you read through like the statements of the Giving Pledge people, or uh, you kind of, scratch the surface even a tiny bit um you know it it, you quickly start to see what they think is wrong with existing society and it really does reflect kind of the you know more conspiracy-minded sort of things uh in terms of uh but almost in a mundane way like you know you have people like uh mark zuckerberg giving hundreds of millions of dollars to school districts Um, and the way that that is structured, the money is structured is basically to pulverize the existing sort of more bureaucratic unionized structures and create, you know, this tech centered, uh, you know, uh, um, competitive in inequal, you know, like, uh, systems and stuff like centered around, you know, like charters and all different things like that. And, uh, it's uh it's it's hard to say no to that kind of money if you're a centrist politician or something you know um but i think that's interesting in terms of uh you know if we start to talk about more of the things that we find interesting uh the three of us 
you know, you start to have that blurring where you kind of wonder, I always think of terms of like the Ford Foundation or some of these older foundations that uh, the money was not just, like it's not just Bill Gates himself off in isolation thinking these things and going, I'm going to give money to this. There's also, you know, you got to wonder what the coordination as a class and the coordination as between like elites and intelligence agencies and all these other things um, to, you know, it, you like if you look at it sort of individually, you see all of these rich people um, trying to rebrand themselves and, you know, use all this money for special projects and stuff. But uh, you got to wonder how much of it is almost like slush funds for uh, state projects and things like that. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like, I think it's uh, it's kind of easy to write it off as just like, oh, well, he's got to give money away to look like a nice guy or something. But, I, I mean, his wealth doubled since he started to do this kind of stuff. He went from like 50 to over $100 billion uh, in terms of his value. So he's making money doing this, right? So this isn't just, he's not losing money and, and just trying to shore up his his public image because he's made enough and now he's happy and he just wants to make sure people think of him in, in a nice way he yeah like he's saying or like you're saying he's engineering these things in a certain way and reorganizing the way that the world works so that it sort of goes the way that he wants it to or that him and his friends and the the, the class that he comes from want things to go sure and i i mean i would even go as far to say that like i think it's true that you know uh, different people can use these things to, you know, increase their wealth or whatever at the same time. But I think even if uh, these people gave away almost everything immediately, uh, um, you know, I mean, after the first billion, the the utility sort of drops off a bit for you kind of individually. Yeah, sure. yeah. But like the, the power and the sort of position within the system... Uh, I mean, even if to, you know, to diminish the individual side of it more and to think like, you know, there's so many people that are much more interested in being embedded in certain networks and things like that, embedded in certain decision-making processes. Uh, and, I mean, you see things like that with, like, the Clintons and stuff where, you know, they do have, uh, you know, we didn't talk about the Clinton Foundation, but it had this sort of, uh, you know, you, ha you see these little... Uh, you see similarities in almost like family resemblance between all these different organizations that they have similar projects, but I think that you can't really, you can't pin it all on greed. You know what I mean? A lot of the time, because you know, it's, you know, for someone like the Clintons, it's much more about, uh, you know, their position within certain, uh, decision-making structures in society or something or the culture. And, you know, people like the Obamas care a lot more. It seems like about this sort of, culture making and celebrity and things like that than they do about like say uh you know managing global health narratives or something you know so uh it's uh i don't know i mean there is you have to yeah it's a, it's a very strange i mean at the uh, you know even just to take a second to say it it's like it's a very strange world we live in i mean it's just very <laughs> very bizarre how everything and uh I think in the future, I think a lot of these things will look more obviously to more people as almost like feudal arrangements or something where, uh, you know, these super empowered individuals, as Tom Friedman called them, like, uh, you know, uh, 
dominate a lot of decisions that should not be dominated by them. But yeah. Yeah, they got to go. Got to go. <laughs> yeah. Drain the swamp. Yeah. Drain the swamp, baby. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so I think that should wrap it up unless you have some final thoughts for us, Mike. No, I think that's about it. You know, um, this this whole thing, I mean, I, I didn't really realize the extent to which uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation in particular had um, their tentacles in absolutely everything. I mean, may, maybe just something to leave people with is that the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is not the majority of Bill Gates's wealth. He has an entirely separate investment vehicle called the Cascade Investment um, which handles the majority of his wealth. So this is this is like something that he does for fun while his you know money is off in Four Seasons hotels and you know in prison corporations and Monsanto. all kinds of stuff like this. Yeah, and um, and nuclear power too. Like he's a big nuclear guy, so he's got his own pet like nuclear company and stuff like this. You know, this is the stuff that we've been talking about is just a scraping of um, you know, the places this guy's been and and what his um, tentacles reach into. Uh, and you know, Epstein being there shouldn't really be any surprise. You know, to to see um kind of that network uh attract and have participation of these you know neoliberal paragons yeah for sure so what do you guys say you want to do a couple questions to to cap this thing off sure okay i I got some canada related ones that i thought would be good i've got two canadians here so let's see Uh, okay so we'll start with this one Donald, and then Mike, you can also respond, of course. What's your opinion of the Canadian monarchy? Mike, do you want to start off with that? or uh, I'm a Jacobit, so don't oh, like it. Yeah, yeah I mean, uh, it's, it is hard living under uh, you know, a foreign crown that uh, believes in sort of like a renegade faith um, that, you know... Uh, refuses to uh, accept the pope um but you know there's there's been some you know uh glowing you know like uh um like you know like there's been some uh, positive events like they did make it so that you they were allowed to marry a catholic i believe and uh, so if that happens you know if you get enough married into the family we might be able to take back the country um uh yeah i don't know although you know and then quebec has to become a republic obviously so those are the two uh hopes for my future yeah i'm thinking that a monarchy would maybe be an easier fit for the islamo-catholic emirate than some sort of republic that has to deal with you know democracy and all that nonsense i don't know something to keep in mind we'll play it by ear as Okay, here's another one about Canada. Uh, what's your opinion of Canada's official multiculturalism policy? Does it promote national unity or encourage reactionary identity politics? Well, I mean, Canada, at like a very surface level, uh, has been... Like, if, if you compare it fairly, kind of thing, like to other countries in Europe and like Australia or something, I think we're probably one of the ones that 
you know, on paper, at least so far, has done okay with it because uh, we don't have, like, say, you know, the National Front or something getting 40% in the presidential vote or whatever, you know, like that kind of level. Uh, we don't have, like, the UKIP or whatever. We don't have those kind of things. Uh, we have very... Canada tends to get, like, half-assed, watered-down versions of whatever the rest of the world gets. <laughs> so, like, we, we get, like, uh, you know, our conservatives, uh, you know, they'll... They'll like say all those kind of things, and like they obviously exist on Facebook and stuff. And there's a lot of memes about you know like racism or cultural whatever kind of stuff. Uh, but it tends not to trickle up. A little bit maybe trickles up in Quebec, uh, you know. And then there's also you know like anti-indigenous racism and stuff like that. But like uh, I don't know. Whenever you like see like that's one of the sad things about living in Canada is that whenever you uh, see something on the news like. You know, if, say, like, Trump becomes a phenomenon, you know, like, there's going to be some Canadian politician that tries to do some, you know, half-assed, like, you know, you start to see stuff like keep, you know, make Canada great again and all that kind of thing. And uh, I don't know. It's pretty sad. But, I mean, that's also a, a good thing in some ways because uh, I, I don't have to take Canadian politics too seriously most of the time because, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know who would, uh, I don't know who wants to, uh, you know, become an extremist in Canada really kind of thing you know so yeah it, it's sort of like that meme like mom can we have whatever can we have extremist politics it's like oh we have extremist politics at home and then it's Canadian politics yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah I think it's really good you know it just in in the narrow sense of um you know I think we might be one of the uh only nations or only nation states with a, a genuine legal pluralism and we talk in islamic legal theory all the time about legal pluralism well you know at least to some extent we have it right you know we have civil law we have common law we have ostensibly you know like the first nations are supposed to be able to govern themselves according to their laws um at one point there there were functioning um both uh jewish and muslim uh, family courts in Ontario, um, those got shut down after people realized that Muslims were doing it and not just Jews and Christians. But, you know, the, the potential is, is there, I think, for um, a much more thoroughgoing uh, pluralism than you might expect in um, other states that make kind of multiculturalism uh, or pluralism a, a watchword, but, you know, really legally you're you're a liberal. Uh, Tom and I actually talked about uh, those courts, like the sort of like uh, family um, arbitration things that you're talking about for, right. that, you know, and uh, um, I wasn't aware that I didn't know though they actually got to the point where they, they shut them down. I, but I knew that they, uh, um, I, I knew that it was like a meme online, like people got really angry about it and stuff, but yeah. Uh, um, I'd ever knew. So it was, do you know if the, it was like, what, do you know if it was the liberals, I guess that shut that down or, um, it must've been, right? I guess. Yes. Or... Yeah. I, I think that might've been McGinty. I can't remember, but, okay, um, sure. it was basically, it, it was kind of funny because they commissioned a provincial level report on it, which found that the courts were operating properly and, you know, within the law and they were only, uh, attending to the kinds of arbitration disputes that they're supposed to attend to and everything else was being directed appropriately to legal authorities, whatever, criminal courts, et cetera. Um, and they shut it down anyway. 
is yeah. just like you know no yeah it may be operating properly but we just can't we can't tolerate muslims like having any level of legal autonomy here um and it it, it was a lot of it was liberal muslim organizations um you know a lot of the the kind of usual suspects um who uh, just did not want the the broader community to be doing this at all. So yeah, sure, yeah, yeah. It's it's funny. I I do remember a lot of uh, you know there is that sort of strain of uh, it's not like you know it, it's not just right wing groups. It's also you know you got a lot of uh, people like liberal lawyers and things like that who uh, um, get really angry at the idea of parallel legal traditions and things like that like they want like a single unified uh sort of front that everything and that has never existed really in reality in family law and things like that like there's there's so it's it's in reality it's such a diverse um you know world kind of thing that of uh, you just can't get there um but i do remember a lot of the sort of you know uh, you know it's 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 just a very common for I think for in legal debates and things for people to take the first thing they thought of that seems obvious as a principal thing to them. So, yeah. It's astonishing in Canada too, just because we have the obvious example of like, if you go into Quebec and you do a crime, you're getting judged by civil law. It's an entirely different system. So I don't know. Yeah. I know what you mean. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's not, yeah. I think criminal law is different. It is still, uh, it's still common law, I think in, in, Quebec, but I know what you mean, like all the contracts. Oh, sorry, yeah, the uh, contract yeah, law, yeah. Yeah, so, but, uh, yeah, it's, yeah, I know, it's, 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 uh, um, but not even that, but just even, like, even just, uh, as you said, like, within Christian and Jewish uh, subcultural sort of communities, uh, there's always been diversity in those uh, sort of areas and things like that, so, just because people are complex, you can't just have, uh, you can't have a single rule without obliterating a lot of differences that are meaningful so yeah yeah just another thing to put on our emirate platform i guess sure yeah <laughs> um okay here's one about jeffrey epstein it says is it safe to assume jeffrey epstein has been condemned to hell or is it possible for even a sinner of that magnitude to redeem themselves so um the likelihood i would say is i mean i wouldn't bet on him being redeemed i you know not supposed to be betting but if i were i I wouldn't bet in his favor however is it possible uh yeah yeah uh there's a hadith that talks about a man who kills 99 people and then before he goes and kills the hundredth he realizes that he's been doing the wrong thing and he asks for forgiveness and he's granted forgiveness and he enters paradise so um you know, there's there's another hadith that I'm thinking of that says that God has 99 or 100 parts of mercy, and he's given one of those to to this world. Like for, for people and animals in this world, we have one of 99 parts of mercy, and the other, the other parts are reserved for the day of judgment. So the mercy and forgiveness that we are promised is incomprehensible. So it's possible... Yes. But if I were to kind of draft up a quick list of people that I would safely assume are not going to have a good day when that time comes, I'd probably put Epstein on there. 
Uh, yeah, I would say that, uh, um, you know, there, there's this, uh, I, I always think like, what do people want out of that too? Like what is, like what, I guess if you're a victim or something, obviously you would want yeah, like, justice, uh, right? justice, but like, uh, um, uh, I don't know. I feel like, uh, you know, it's one, it's interesting. Uh, I think about this in terms of like priests here, confessions and things. And, uh, one of the things that priests often say when they're asked about it is that, uh, they hear so many different, extremely negative things from people that uh, there's a tendency to start to see it as, uh, you know, not, I don't want to say like a foible, but almost like, uh, oh, humans are up to their old tricks kind of thing, you know, like uh, that sure. they, hear, they hear so many bad things that uh, they think to themselves, like, you know, uh, people think that they're so evil and so bad, but uh, it's it's you know it, there really is like it's very mundane in some ways it's very you know like simplistic uh the way that people turn into animals in different ways and really uh do all these terrible things to each other and uh it you know it's a very it's it's a very uh topic that um you know it drives a lot of passions because of how visceral it is and our rejection of it and things like that you know um, but I feel like there's all different types of evil out there and, uh, a, a lot of the negativity. Yeah. I feel like I, you know, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, priests say something like we've seen it all kind of thing, you know, or like a doctor, you know, will say I've seen it all kind of thing, you know, like, a, I think that, uh, our concept of what people are capable of is probably diminished compared to God's concept. Right. So, uh, things that we think are completely beyond the pale, uh, he probably is like, oh, I've seen a lot of that, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to forgive and, you know, I don't know. I think it's funny because there is that, uh, I think it's true, but you know, even for stuff like, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll say it, it's kind of, this might be controversial, but like with the Biden stuff, right. About Tara Reid and everything. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, it's become this sort of obviously like a touchstone where people are, uh, it's like a dividing line issue, right? Like it's saying that this is the thing that, if it's true, then he obviously should not be president. And there are some people kind of saying like, well, I don't care because he's still not as bad as Trump and all that. I don't think that that's kind of like the center of the country kind of thing. I think if it were beyond the doubt that like it was a, you know, whatever accusation, but uh, that I think the majority of people would be not comfortable with that as a, you know, rationale or whatever. But like uh, the thing to me is that like, there's so many other things that he's done in his life that are, he was proud of and, you know, yeah. like stuff like supporting the Iraq war and stuff. Right. And it's right. interesting that because it's not visceral in that same way of the immediacy of a sex crime, uh, it becomes almost like a policy debate thing where he made a mistake and picked the wrong one. And then you can't really hold that against him. And I, I always feel like going, no, 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 we can hold that against them a lot kind of thing, you know, like that, that is, uh, um, so anyways, that's, it's the same, it's the same similar sort of structure. I mean, in terms of, uh, um, uh, there's, there's a lot of people like Jeffrey Epstein out there in their own way kind of thing, you know? So, yeah. 
We should also remember that if Jeffrey Epstein or any of these other people turn out to be reptilians, they technically do not have souls. And so this question would not be <laughs> That's right. And then you might be giving away your good deeds by bad-mouthing them. So you have to be very careful about what you're doing there. So we're taking a big risk for you folks by broadcasting all this kind of stuff. So I hope you appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I got one last one. Uh says, Dear Tom and Don, I can't win. Ha ha ha, you fools. I've already won. Sincerely, Shadow Donald. So he's out there and he's watching. <laughs> oh no. Oh no. I'm scared. <laughs> no, I'm not going to sleep tonight. But yeah. So, anyways, well, thanks for coming on, Mike. That was, uh, it was fun. It's always fun with you to walk through this kind of, uh, um, dark world that we live in yeah i think you know there's there's a lot of uh of richness in coronaverse for fans of epstein verse so. <laughs> yeah yeah all right guys well i hope you enjoyed the episode if you want a second one every week you can subscribe to our patreon you'll get access to that and you will also get access to our discord where you can chat with our community and uh yeah we hope to see you next week thanks for listening i told that bitch to save my number in the phone under bill gates you heard me uh you heard me? I just need you to do for me what I need you to do for me And I'ma come through when you need me, bitch You heard me, bitch? Bitch, you heard me, bitch? Uh, silk sweaters, dirty berettas, and petty vendettas Niggas was jealous, I get it, bring it, win it, whatever Court dates and caskets, I'm trying to stay composed Out on bond, on the run, will never sell my soul Doing bad, I showed him I could make a cool meal At the lab, try to keep my name out the news reels Or at the palms, and I know the feds across the hall I got a bitch who licking balls, my back against the wall All black photographs can speak a million words One selfie with me and they think you're dealing birds Louis Towns in the Gucci slides Bill Gates still real when it's out of style I want it all, wing stops on every corner I want them all and I'm about to build a Benny Hunter Find out my dogs, quarter million on a new appeal They call me Bill Gates and they know the money real They wanna know my name, I tell them Bill Gates Just blew a hundred million and I'm still straight Started waving flags when the rockets came Then put a hundred kilos on the stock exchange Crack money, night sweats, wake up in night sweats Homemade key lime pie, we cut in slices All my people lead at the table when we say our grace One I open for the Judas, who wanna take my place? Twelve disciples, I got two shooters, nigga, ten body Caught a few niggas living, thinking that I ain't body Dicky shirts, blood stains, come with the drug game Cell phones, tap fast, money and come stay Public defenders, they a number and you niggas tremble Judge dropped the mallet, man, well put a bullet in you Louis Towns in the Gucci slippers Bill Gates still real and I keep it shriller I want it all, wing stops on every counter I want them all and I'm about to build a Benny Hunter Find out my dogs, quarter million on a new appeal They call me Bill Gates and they know the money real They wanna know my name, I tell them Bill Gates Still straight. They started waving flags when the rockets came. They put a hundred kilos on the.
the stock exchange. Cold cases, they wanna put me in the hot seat. Finger licking, left over lobster in the front seat. Niggas follow me in hopes of finding my stash box. In the ghost, like the Pope, the all glass top. Look around, I smile at you as I'm looking down. Bill Gates, that red Chevy, just be thumping loud. I put my niggas on their feet, we can't be fucking up. So fuck a hundred bricks, flip a hundred restaurants.